Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome to our second holiday Hidden History Happy Hour episode, everybody. And since the World Cup, Alex, is still raging while yep. our fans are listening to this, we're adding another epic sports yarn and as a special cross-Atlantic fellowship bonus, a story that features two of my favorite things. One, my absolute favorite subject, Alex, of your King George II, you know, one of your German kings, uh, George Washington, and of course, horses. And I don't know if you remember the epic American TV show MASH, Alex. You might be a little I young. I do. No, no. Korean War went on. The, the show went on for longer than the conflict. Longer than the war. They could have filmed every day of the war and had fewer episodes. But there was a character on there, Colonel Sherman Potter, and he said, a great movie only needs three things, horses, cowboys, and horses. So <laughs> we're going to tell a story about George Washington's horses today. And uh, this will make more sense in a little bit of why I'm doing this, but I'm enjoying some pusser's navy rum yes British navy run gunpowder proof and it's 9 30 in the morning here so less people think i'm just a complete sod um i'm also enjoying it with eggnog and coffee and well American that's tradition. the most civilized of you i am having and it's a more uh, appropriate time for me um i'm having some uh oh, barrel yes. fermented chardonnay uh, from jordan excellent. This is absolutely superb, and um, we served it at our wedding, and uh, we procured it privately. We, you know, we got a, a good deal on it from High Timber, a restaurant you and I have been to together. Uh, got a great deal, so I have some left. So we're ah. working our way through the and he, in one of Katrina's mother's hock glasses, no less. Here is my cheers to you with my wedding wine. Cheers! Cheers and congratulations again. And if you um, if you, you do me the honor, I could not do you and come to my wedding you will be able to visit the very uh, vineyard where Jordan uh, Chardonnay is grown, I believe. No, two different Jordans. Uh, that's oh. uh, that's uh, Jardin Jordan um, in um, the US, and this is Jordan, South African Jordan. Um, a, a frequent uh, hiccup for both parties. I know it really annoys <laughs> both of them, but, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things. Well, they're probably both excellent. Yeah, I know. Annoying for, for both parties, because if one was just, you know, second rate, then they could write off the, you know, no one would confuse the two and the awards ceremonies would be untroubled by this confusion. Um, yeah. But yes, this is this is um, uh, Stellenbosch, uh, Jordan, beautiful estate that I have been to. Ah. Um, unusually in that part of the world, they've got slopes on all four sides of, a, you know, of the mountain ranges. So the hills, so they get everything um, from, they, I think they at one point did grow a Pinot, although they don't grow it now. It's a bit too warm for that, uh, through to the bigger heavy-hitting reds and their world-beating Chardonnays, which I'm currently enjoying. So um, big, big fan. Well, one day we'll have to have a taste off, possibly uh, possibly reminiscent of the movie uh, Bottle Shock. We'll have it uh, in, in Europe. That sounds great to me, or we could do it reminiscent of Sideways and destroy ourselves <laughs> in the course of bitching about Malot. Yes, we have options. Yes. Well, <laughs> look, without further ado, yeah. oh, one one further ado point, and that is, I don't even know if that's proper grammar, but one point I wanted to mention is when we recorded our last episode, which you all will have already seen by now, uh, we did not know the outcome of the USA-England uh, football match. And uh, at this point we do, and it was a uh, tie. Uh, what do you call that? A draw? A draw. A draw, which uh, uh, it, which allows the US to stay in it for one more game at least, right? One more match. 
That it does, uh, and it means that uh, we will still continue to call it football. If you had uh, won, I think, on current form, I would have conceded calling it soccer. Uh, but as it is, we uh, we stand continue. I mean, it's a disappointing result for for England. Of course, yeah. in many in many disciplines, the United States, not least the Olympics, uh, the United States outperforms um, the countries of the British Isles. But in football, we thoroughly expect to beat you. So this was a yeah. disappointing result, to say the least. Well, I am barely old enough to remember when the U.S. of A. beat the USSR in hockey in the Miracle. Right, uh, Miracle on Ice. Miracle on Ice. And uh, so I am very much looking forward, without further geopolitical comment, to our match against Iran this coming week. And hopefully by the time you all see this, we will have beaten Iran. I hope so, too. As they are advertised in this tournament, at least, the Islamic Republic of Iran. Yes. All right. All right. Well, let's let's get on to our story. Yeah. So this is the boys' own Roy of the Rovers, if that's a reference that means anything to you, sporting ace down under story. And it's not a soccer story, obviously. It's a story of um, state of origin. In Australia, rugby league is a really big deal. And pound for pound, of course, the Aussies are the best sporting nation in the world. And if you don't know that, just ask them and they'll tell you. <laughs> um, so this means that, you know, in the ancient world that you were discussing with Mike on one of the earlier episodes, a Spartan might have thought the most formidable opponent was another Spartan. Well, the Australians think another, the most formidable sporting opponent they can face is another Australian. And in no sport is that more apparent than rugby league, which is, of course, a hard game. And a fast game. And for those of us brought up as I was in rugby union, it's a game missing two players aside on the pitch uh, from the scrum. <laughs> and there, there is no competition in that sport in which that's more true than the State of Origin series. I used to, our listeners, some of my listeners won't know, but I used to live in Australia. Yes. And um, I used to live in Queensland. And to which, of course, the response is, it's all the Queensland. But uh, <laughs> although it's not anymore, it's the Kingsland. Well, don't tell the Aboriginals that. Uh, Amen and point taken, but for another day. And so state of origin is so exclusive that it four of the six Australian states aren't even invited. Um, <laughs> three matches a year are played to decide the winner between the Queensland side and the New South Wales side. And the Queensland side, which and this is spelt maroons, spelt uh, and pronounced maroons. Don't ask me why. Oh, it's like I wore the right sweater today. You did indeed. And the New South Wales Blues, which is pronounced blues. Uh, <laughs> and so you play for the state if you're, you have to be very good. But if you're good enough, you play for the state that's home to the professional team that you first played for in rugby league, hence state of origin. Mm. And it is one of the fiercest rivalries in sport. I can tell you, if you're in Australia, when it happens, you know, the country stops and these games are enormous uh, clashes. And for much of the 1980s and 1990s, before I uh, went to Australia, one of the standout players for Queensland, if not the standout player, was Alfie Langer, who was perhaps the best halfback of his generation. And he captained the um, best team in the league, um, the Brisbane Broncos. I'm going to first footnote. I, I, you know, I lived near the grounds of the uh, Broncos for some time. It was about the most biased place you could see sport <laughs> taking place. It, it, if the opposition were on the attack, uh, there would be like an announcement about somebody having left their lights on in uh, and <laughs> in the car park. We would boo and cheer, or, or perhaps a, you know this particular deal is available for food and beverage. If the Brisbane Broncos were on the attack and nearing their opponent's try line, the the announcer would bellow in 
ear-splitting volume. Let's go, Broncos! And the entire stadium would would cheer, uh, I mean, and, and barrack and, and shout. And if they went across the try line, uh, the crowd would not only go bananas, this kind of, this gate at one end of the ground would open up uh, and a very pulchritudinous woman uh, on a white horse would gallop around the stadium sure. with an enormous Broncos flag. <laughs> like one does, so, yeah. This is, so it was not, these are not understated affairs, these games. Um, so um, Alfie Langer, he hit hard and he ran straight and he inspired others. You know, who can hope for more from an athlete? And in the closing years of the 20th century, uh, he was an icon for both his club and his state. But after, you know, 15 years of hard knocks, Alfie decided that enough was enough. And he took up uh, what in his uh, line of work was regarded as a lucrative form of semi-retirement, uh, which was playing professional rugby league in the United Kingdom, um, <laughs> where, where life was quite a lot easier. And um, he graced the field as captain for the Warrington Wolves, which is a side in my country. And much was said in the uh, forever calm Australian press about him having gone. You know, he'll be missed, said some. He's too old, said others. You know, we don't need him in the Queensland side uh, anymore. Tempus Rose, I'm not making this up. The Prime Minister issued a statement on the question. Uh, Prime Minister of Australia, I mean. Uh, rugby is, of course, a team sport, Brian. Success and failure are never about one man. But it is true to say, and I was living in the country at this time, that without Alfie, Queensland struggled mightily in the 2001 State of Origin series. And the series was tied 1-1. The final game loomed. People, New South Wales mocked the very notion that Queensland would do what they did. But pride was swallowed. In great secrecy, the call was made to London. We need you, Alfie. Fly around the world, Alfie. Come back and play for us one last time. Yeah, Ken o, uh, Alfie cried. And under a false name, um, he booked himself on the next Qantas flight uh, out of London. But no secret can stay this secret for very long. And soon his return, which was, by the way, the first selection in the series of a player who was, who was in the UK, wasn't even in Australia, uh, became known. The night of the game, Australia stood still. Would Alfie return to triumph or disaster? 25 other players, of course, on the pitch in Bris Vegas, uh, my old home. But the focus was all on one man, Alfie, Alfie. And sometimes sporting dreams and fairy tales do come true. You know, the Queensland side was made up of men who'd been boys raised in the shadow of Alfie's greatness, and, and sure. they were inspired playing alongside him and New South Wales was somewhat intimidated and the Maroons destroyed New South Wales uh, that night set up two tries scored one himself Queensland won 40-14 which is a Oof. decent margin um, in, in that sport Sydney's Daily Telegraph uh, said it uh, all the next day in a huge uh, massive font uh, point um, uh, banner headline the next morning bloody Alf <laughs> and the biggest lesson for me from this story, Brian, is to be taken not from the game, but which worked out, but from the moment of the surprise call and his response to it. Because the fear of failure, of ending this astonishing legendary career, 
uh, on a high profile of low notes must have been huge. The temptation to remain in London must have been enormous. And his biggest opponent, in some ways, if thought about it like that, must have been his own reputation. But none of that mattered. When duty called, Alfie served. And that's therefore why it's one of my favorite stories in all the sports. Mine too. Now, we talked last time about one of your stories being made into a film. Why mm. is there no Alfie film? No, I, I mean, it's, uh, extraordinary, really. I mean, the Australians, Australians have got a huge um, uh, body of, of work in, in cinema, you know, Muriel's Wedding, very famously successful. The Dish was was something that did extremely well. I, I really like The Castle, which is a, a story about uh, a family struggle to maintain their home against the oppressive grasp of of, of others. Um, Australian cinema has got a great track record, and there's no reason why they, they couldn't or wouldn't. But as far as I know, there will be no um, Alfie film. But, you know, sometimes these, these movies come about oh, decades yeah. after... You know, decades after the um, the fact, so let us hope that, um, uh, that 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 I'm wrong, and that at some point a movie will emerge. But the uh, the movie you're talking about uh, coming out, and I don't know the extent to which it's going to be um, intruded on by the coronavirus, which came in between. But Mark Rylance, who you were called oh, um, very well in recent years, great actor is going to play Morris Flitcroft, who I talked about. I, I claim no credit for propelling the film. Right. But I, in the book, uh, in my first book, I talked. the story's called High School, and I talked about Morris Flitcroft, who was an ice cream uh, man and then a shoe polish salesman and then a crane operator who played at the 1976 Open, which is the holy of golfing holies, and went round in the highest score of all time because they promptly said afterwards that you really had to be a professional to <laughs> to compete. So it'll his his high score of 121 uh, will I can confidently say never be beaten um, at the Open, and um, that was Sevilla Ballesteros Ballesteros's first Open. But ah. you know, and who remembers who who remembers who won? Uh, right. Uh, um, was won by Johnny Miller, which no one else will remember. What people remember is Morris Flickroft. And that's going to be a great uh, uh, movie when it comes out. Yes. And our executive producer, Ivan Williams, no doubt is watching us. So Ivan, maybe you can option up the uh, Alfie story cheap and we'll get that thing done finally. Couldn't agree more. And Ivan, we know you've had a, a brush with a health issue. We really hope you the very best. Yes. Cheers, Ivan. Mm -mm. Speedy recovery is underway. I'm happy to report. That's great. And um, he'll be back with us soon. And you have a story for us too, Brian. I do have a story. And this one uh, is chapter 43 from the original Lessons from History, which I think it's fair at this point. We can just start calling the OG of yeah. the Lessons the from OG History series. History. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Since I, people really are encouraging me to call the next one Lessons from History 3, which may sound yeah. crap. But I, I'm not much of a rapper, but I think it still sounds quite cool. <laughs> well, it's not going to get worse than more Lessons from History. We know that. Uh, um, lessons from history Miami takedown was my initial yes, suggestion I, for a sequel. I wish <laughs> they would have <laughs> white bag publishing were not having it <laughs> authors only have so much influence you know Apparently you slave so. away behind the, the computer but then you got nothing to say about when it when it so, comes to publication the author is merely a legal necessity yes and sometimes not even that you remember we've talked about before that amazing movie uh, Argo um, oh, in which I film. believe there's a I believe there's a line, something like, this would be a great business if there weren't actors involved or something like that. Um, so in any event, this is one of my favorite stories uh, from the OG. And uh, Alex is kind enough to let me tell it today. It's simply called Washington's Horses. 
And as Alex writes, before he was America's first president, George Washington was, of course, one of his nascent country's most successful military leaders, everyone knows. And Alex, here we pause for a couple of key points. It's a short story after all. First, whilst many responsible for the, if you will, royal drubbing my young nation gave what had been perceived as one of the world's foremost military powers, I think we can agree that Washington sits at the very top of that exalted pyramid. And second, as Alex points out in the story, and as we've discussed before on the podcast, in the Newburgh letter of 1782, the army proposed to Washington that he should become king of America. King for life. He declined the suggestion as he declined serving more than two terms of president of the new United States of America. In both cases, I think we've agreed before on this podcast, the leader made great and self-effacing decisions and perhaps his most important decisions for the future of the United States. In any event, Washington had two favorite horses. By the way, Thomas Jefferson claimed that Washington was the best horseman of his age. And Alex calls this acceptable flattery because no doubt he was good. Now, I would note here that Thomas Jefferson acknowledging that anyone was his equal on anything was a monumental occasion. Have you been to Monticello, Alex? Not yet. It's worth a trip. Maybe next time we're in D.C. Monticello, of course. Well, not of course, for those that don't know, Monticello is is uh, Jefferson's uh, uh, home in Virginia, also uh, co-located with his University of Virginia that he founded. And when I first went on a tour of of Monticello, uh, I was in my early 30s, and it was depressing because every stop you make along the tour is some other amazing accomplishment that Jefferson did before he was 35. Oh, I see. Yeah. And, And I remember thinking to myself towards the end of the ride, I thought, God, I wonder if Jefferson had much of an ego. And so sure enough, at the end of the story, the little uh, docent ladies who uh, who give the tour in their gingham dresses uh, said the following. Mr. Jefferson was a humble man. And before he died, he wrote his own epitaph. He only wanted to be remembered for three things. Father of American independence. <laughs> author of the <laughs> author of the Constitution. Author of religious freedom in the new world. Founder of the University of Virginia. And that's the three. Yes! I'm yes. sorry. Yes! Got... Cheers but, to you. But it was, but pres- presidency with the United States was not one. Nope. And by God, those three things are on his tombstone. Yeah. I'm sorry to have been a sports player. That was crazy. No, no. But, uh... No, no, no. I like to be interrupted, unlike some people on this podcast. Um, so Washington's first <laughs> horse, <laughs> called Blueskin, is the horse that you see in all the portraits. Blueskin was a fine parade horse, large and elegant. The second horse, Nelson, was a smaller, sturdy steed and very calm under fire. And Washington always mounted this horse when action was likely. And so Washington's men took to noting each morning which horse their general was about to ride. And from this would swiftly make its way through the ranks as to what sort of day it would be, i.e. a banner day of kicking British arse on the battlefield or a more routine type day rooting out Benedict Arnold's and fighting dysentery. Uh, That parenthetical is my ad, everyone. So blame me if you don't like it. Um, Now, there is, says Alex, an obvious lesson here that the approach or tool needed for action may be less flashy than the one that catches the eye, a proposition, Alex, on which almost my entire career depended. Hmm. But Alex adds this perhaps more important point. Leaders, not just including, but especially those trusted implicitly by those who follow them, must be acutely aware of the fact that even the smallest of their deeds will be monitored of what is to come. And Alex, this astute observation of yours leads me to an explanation of why I chose rum for today 
Mm. And I'll give it to you in a minute. But first, any more thoughts on Washington's horses? Great just, story. Just, just thank you very much. Just this. Uh, and I, I I like that story very much too, like you. Um, people will be familiar with all manner of iconography of Washington. I'm a Washington fan like you. I think he's a great figure of history and a great and impressive uh, man. And um, almost all of the iconography that they will have seen on Washington on horseback is with Blueskin is yeah. of the parade ground horse. And I rather lament the fact that Nelson, this small serviceable horse that was his horse of battle, basically in, isn't in any of the portraits. And Washington must be amongst the most um, painted figures yeah. of, 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 of history, but he doesn't uh, feature once uh, astride Nelson. And I, on the one hand, I, I, I think that's a, a shame. On the other hand, I think um, it's a great demonstration of this point, isn't it? There's one thing for the showmanship, and there's another thing for the action. Yeah, well, isn't that that's a thing, right? You, you can be a show horse or a workhorse. Yeah, they used pony. to say this yeah. about 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 Senate U.S. senators a lot. They're either a show pony or a work pony. So, Alex, looking back on this nearly year long adventure we've been on, I feel we've delivered on almost everything we promised our listeners and later our viewers in our opening episode, except perhaps for one thing. And Alex, do you have a guess as to what that one thing might be? Good God, I, there's so much I, I think we've still got left to do. I'm not going to hazard a, a guess, albeit I'm looking forward to doing this some time to come uh, and um, smudging my answer, but maybe we'll, we'll, in the course of things, even if you didn't tell me, we'll, we'll get it right and hit it, but go on. Absolutely. Uh, we will go on uh, as long as we can, uh, our bodies and, and minds can manage it, um, which is a long time. Uh, so as I add to my mug an extra dram of Pusser's British Navy rum, Alex, mm -hmm. I think we haven't had enough pirates. Oh, touche. We, we talked a lot about pirates. Uh, that is true. That is fair. And uh, I, I told a few stories about pirates in my, uh, in my first book, especially. And um, we haven't done enough piracy. Um, so I will address that in stories to come. Fair challenge. Well, and I'm going to tell a quick one right now Go on. that you're more than welcome to put into uh, lessons of lessons from history three, three history three, right? <laughs> history three, lessons of history. There's got to be like a history three or some sort of sing, yeah. you know, signing you can do for that. So, Alex, yeah, I'm, you may know this one. If you do, just bear with me. There once was a pirate. We won't name names, but suffice to say that this pirate was one of the most respected and fearsome pirates on all of the seven seas. And one fine day. The pirate captain and his crew were in grave danger of being boarded by a British Navy ship of the line. And as the crew became understandably frantic at this threat, the captain bellowed to his first mate, bring me my red shirt. The first mate quickly retrieved the captain's red shirt, which the captain put on and led the crew to a miraculous victory over the powerful warship. Now, later that day, the lookout screamed that there were not one, but two British warships alongside, and this time they were sending boarding parties. And the crew again cowered in fear, but the captain, calm as ever, bellowed, bring me my red shirt. The battle was on. Once again, the captain and his crew repelled both boarding parties, although this time with a few more casualties. And so now, weary from the battles of the day, the men sat around on deck that night recounting the occurrences when a newbie pirate looked to the grizzled captain and said, sir, why do you call for your red shirt before battle? And the pirate captain, giving the youngster a sympathetic look, said, well, son, if I'm wounded in battle, the red shirt does not show the wound, and thus you men will continue to fight unafraid. And the men sat in silence, marveling the courage of such a man. Alas, at dawn, 
The lookout screamed there were now 10 British warships surrounding them and cutting off all avenues of escape, outnumbering the pirates at least 20 to 1, and all with boarding parties on the way. And the men came, became silent and looked to their captain for his usual command. But this time, Alex, the captain, calm as ever, bellowed, bring me my brown pants! <laughs> I, 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 I confess, I got the headline a little ahead of you, but I didn't want to, I, I think it's very good. <laughs> bring well, me my I, brown trousers would have been the English version. <laughs> that, that's, that joke is so oftenly told, you probably cannot put it in the book, but it's one of my favorites. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure I could put it in my... Uh, in the. So one of the things I, I do in the books is that I... I put some of the jokes in the footnotes, almost yes. as if I I don't pretend they're part of the main story. They're, they're not they're not sufficiently worthy so as as to be in the main story. And I uh, in my story about Tycho Brahe, who had the the bridge of his nose whacked off, right? But kept but his nostrils were left, so he, he used to wear this nose piece that was sort of uh, gummed onto his face, and. Uh, and I said, I said in the footnotes, and well, this is a terrible joke, but I said in the footnotes, <laughs> he got to keep his nostrils, which presumably defeated the uh, joke that would have kept them warm in cold Danish nights. Uh, I say, I say, I say, Taiko Brahe's got no, got Brahe's got no nose. How does he smell? Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, classic. Hey, uh, I yeah. know, uh, I know we told, uh, or I guess maybe you told Solo the Caesar's pirate story. Is that right? Caesar's pipes? No, uh, Cilicians. Um, I'm not sure. I don't think I did that, did, did that story on, on an episode, but we can definitely do it in an episode in the future. I, the story it's of here. Caesar, we'll do it. Yeah, the story of, of, of the Cilicians who captured Caesar, I think, is tremendous. In fact, as, I, as we talk now, I think we did it in one of our live episodes in New York. Oh, uh, that might that be is right. no yeah. reason why we can't come back to it and uh, discuss it, um, not least because I think there are real lessons to be learned from listening to what your opponent says, even if it sounds outlandish or absurd. And as we go on and now in what is this, the 10th month of Putin's war of aggression yeah. in Ukraine, listening to what people say rather than passing their meaning and pretending they mean something else because you don't like what uh, yeah. the outcome of what they're saying is more, more important than ever. So why don't we do that in the next episode? Caesar means it. And we mean it. We'll do it next time, and we'll try to scare up another pirate story for you. Cheers, everybody. Cheers, and of my course, friend. Good arr, to see you. Arr. Good to see you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Kaur, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers. Cheers.